0: Welcome to a paradox life. We're two doctors living large, living small. We're talking about our experiences, things we know a lot about, and things we're completely clueless about. Hopefully, it's going to be entertaining and help all of us know a little bit more about this paradox life. Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Beatty.
1: And I'm Dr. Laura Beatty.
0: And you are listening to Paradox Life so on this week's episode we're going to talk about our experiences collectively and separately of the COVID pandemic
1: i think we've moved it feels to the other side of possibly being more endemic
0: i agree with that and i think we will um uh, it'll be interesting to talk about our perspectives and seeing the progression of these past two years from a little bit different viewpoint professionally, you've certainly been more on the front lines, I suppose, though in a way I have been and that we've continued to see patients, but um, I'm sure the urgent care experience has been quite a different thing.
1: Mhm it has but if we go i guess going back to the to the very beginning when we recognized that there was a new novel serious virus in our midst i was just starting to do a little bit of urgent care on the on the side and that ramped up so um so i definitely remember probably my first three patients that I misdiagnosed because we didn't know it was here yet. Uh, And in retrospect, I'm pretty sure they had COVID, but. Well, I
0: remember talking with you about that because my first recollection of uh, really talking about COVID was at a meeting in the winter of uh, a couple of years ago and it had just been identified and talked about in east asia and the reason that it came up is because there were some guys that were contemplating going to a meeting in taiwan and the whole discussion was well do we go and and you know what's the relative level of safety which um i guess you know to me that it reflects that that level of just visceral fear of the new virus, because we truly didn't know how it was going to behave and what the degree of severity was going to be in those early days.
1: I think it also demonstrates just a little bit of naivety on all of our parts, even in medicine, of thinking that we could stay safe from it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And uh, particularly given that we have, historical examples right. of previous novel infectious agents and yeah, reflecting even,
1: even before the world was flat and we were all traveling and doing so much with each other country it, it made it it made it spread pretty rapidly so At- just this idea that we could potentially shut down a border and and keep it out was was kind of laughable or even in different states. Oh my gosh, it's in California, but it's not here when, you know, really it was.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, um, so you had those few early cases that I think that was even before we it was before were it talking, was recognized. Yeah, it was before it was recognized uh widely and um then there shortly after the events that I'm talking about—I mean, it was uh, what April of of the same year when it when the real ramp up in right. case counts. Yeah. yeah, that's when. Yeah, yeah.
1: by certainly by. Um, by early march at least through my urgent cares i worked out and probably across the country we were starting to roll out testing and that was also when we realized that we had a, a big shortage of of uh, personal protective equipment we were right. worried about you know masks and gloves and gowns and uh, it was bef- a little before everybody started jumping on board and making them out of cloth but that was soon thereafter
0: Well, that speaks to one of the problems is that the way we justifiably supply our healthcare system, and for that matter, virtually everything else in the modern world, is that the manufacturing and distribution supply chains are predicated on a predictable and known amount of demand. And so all of a sudden, we're throwing this thing into the mix, which is a dramatic spike in the need or uh, for for these particular products. So you know, even if we had flipped the switch immediately and said, hey, we're gonna put hundred percent effort into cranking out PPE for our healthcare providers and other necessary and other first responders and necessary parts of the population, it couldn't have been done. The capacity just, you know, simply wasn't there the way that we're, that we're constructed.
1: So we had uh, patients and friends delivering N95s from their garage to our office. I know I sent our daughter Ava, and I went out on missions of picking up gloves and masks from various places willing to donate it and taking to our local urgent care um, pediatric centers, hospitals, ERs, just so that we were distributing what little bit we had.
0: Right, right. And we're talking about twenty nineteen here, by the way. So this was truly, you know, the early days and there were a lot of people that were getting extremely sick. The hospitals were getting in particularly in some of the major met- metropolitan areas overloaded. Well, even in some people of our were in areas,
1: remember, we had some hot spots here in Georgia that were not Metro Atlanta that um they that Talked about going through six months of their standard personal sure. protective equipment in less than a week.
0: Sure, and uh, and two at that point, we really didn't understand what, on a population basis what the virulence level of this um, of this infectious agent looked like. We didn't know how many people it was going to kill. We didn't uh, we didn't know how that was going to play out and really only until we began to get somewhat believable and accurate test results could we get a handle on the actual number of people who were infected and as it turns out there were tons of asymptomatically infected people so you know all of that played into the calculus of how best to try to think about and manage this virus i think
1: it's it is pretty interesting to kind of think back through those early days two years ago. It seems like so long ago when we were scrambling to protect ourselves, learning how to test, learning how to do a best practice for something that had never been seen before, sharing information on um, on the Internet and in doctor communities across the globe, really, and just learning in real time, which I think made a at the same race that they were producing vaccines, there was an information sharing happening that I think saved a lot of lives. Um, But the other part of this and talking about our use of personal protective equipment, but also our, in, even in America, we don't have a lot of surge capacity in our hospital systems. Uh, Even a bad flu year, A lot of hospitals go on diversion meaning that they can't accept any more patients in their in their icus or in their emergency rooms and i don't think people quite recognize that there's just not a lot of surge capacity obviously we witnessed that through covid
0: Sure. Well, that's what I was alluding to before. It's not just within the hospital systems. It's the way that we create our systems in general, because, um, you know, what we have elected to do is to try to make things as efficient as possible. And so there are many, many things that are that the necessary materials for whatever it is that you're doing arrive just in time. Now, in a purely economic sense, in normal times when things are happening as predicted, that is that saves money. That makes everybody better off. However, when you have a unexpected and sudden change in any direction of that demand, then it throws a gigantic wrench into the works.
1: So. And now we've seen these ebbs and flows with COVID. A lot of the initial response was just a little bit uh, too, too late. You know, They would open thinking it was a space issue and open these, National Guard,
0: the tent, thing tent and hospitals. Right.
1: And just as soon as they would get them on the ground and ready Nobody to run, it. then it was dropping off. That, yep. that surge would drop off in that community and possibly pop up somewhere else. Yeah. But um, so a lot of the efforts were, were in vain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It did. Uh, it did turn out that way. Well, you had mentioned a uh, couple of minutes ago, and I know you were very involved with this, um with the medical community collectively sharing information. And that was, I think, done in a pretty novel way and using some new patterns of communication because um, many of the traditional ways of transmitting, medical information and supporting the medical community pretty much broke down during Mm -hmm. those uh, early days of COVID. And in fact, in some cases were outright counterproductive to physicians being able to learn how to treat this better. So can you talk about that a little bit and, Um, and how the community came together? Yeah,
1: primarily it was through Facebook groups and people that would deal a lot with it on whether it was ICU, emergency room, primary care, um, subspecialty, however they were best managing it, they were just immediately sharing that information and sometimes doing all-out talks with, with data points from their little inn of 300 patients that they dealt with and what seemed to happen uh, in their hospitals. And that pretty quickly Translated into all of a sudden we knew that patients had better outcome if they were proned instead of the traditional way that we would manage an ICU patient, meaning that we would put them on their stomachs Mm -hmm. Um, pretty quickly realized that we needed to to not wait until somebody felt, you know measurably short of breath before putting them on steroids. There were, again, just several things before we had vaccines, before we had medications to treat that just allowed us to evaluate and manage it more efficiently, learning which patients were going to be at higher risk.
0: Yeah. And I think the the point that really struck me was that uh, so much of this, almost all of this was being done through non-traditional channels, as you said, on Facebook or various social media outcomes. Because I think both you and I agree that one of the real tragedies with the COVID pandemic was that it, for completely inexplicable reasons, became politicized so very early. And the information that was distributed about the virus, about how to treat it, Uh, and how to, frankly, protect yourself in a reasonable fashion was not guided at all by the science of what we were able to learn about the virus quickly. It was this bizarre political debate, and that probably cost as many lives as any other aspect of the pandemic.
1: I'm sure it did. I mean, just what you just said brought back the the hospital administrations stifling their employees doctors and nurses and sometimes firing their employees for even talking about it to the media because they didn't want anyone to be scared or you weren't allowed to wear your N95 in the hallways because that was going to scare patients and not everybody had an N95 and and It was just a little bit outrageous that physicians, at least in these communities on Twitter and on Facebook, were just sharing the fact that that was pretty much happening across across the board.
0: This episode of Paradox Life is brought to you by Beatty Facial Plastic Surgery. Beatty Facial Plastic Surgery is a full-service facial and aesthetic surgery practice serving Atlanta and the Southeast region for over 20 years, providing the best in surgical and non-surgical enhancement for patients throughout our service area. Well, um, that though progressed through, I I guess, a fairly long phase of, what, five or six months as we were trying to figure out how to Mm -hmm. effectively uh, treat the virus. And, you know, globally, there were there developed a number of different strategies as to whether you should uh, lean toward doing very strict lockdowns and attempting to to stop transmission to the greatest degree possible. To the opposite end of the spectrum, I believe Sweden as an example that initially chose to eh, do nothing and just let it run. Um, what well, What are I, your I, recollections of well, that? Well, I think
1: here it eased after we had we had come to grips with the fact that the PPE situation was what it was that we were not getting guidance and we were just kind of basically not going to wait for guidance and we were going to do what we needed to do to protect our best, protect ourselves and Mm -hmm. best protect our patients. Um, learning how to effectively, um, manage disinfecting masks or, saving masks if Mm -hmm. you remember i had my bags one through five numbered and Mm -hmm. i would put my mask in and then reuse it three or four days later after it had sat for a while Uh, but certainly once that once all of that eased and once vaccines were available i think there was a little bit of a collective um, exhalation anyway of uh, what felt like all of us in the medical community holding our breaths
0: just feeling that there was a greater degree of control sure. over both personal protection, but also being able to protect and, and serve patients better. Mm-hmm. So from my end of things, I guess that was since the pra- my practice is office based, relatively low flow and we're not actively seeing patients who are sick with respiratory illnesses, we were viewing it from a little bit different viewpoint of how do we best ensure that we can continue to offer services but without unnecessarily risking exposing ourselves or our patients to an infectious agent. And so, yeah, that was a whole different task. And um, we were very aggressive early on about the process of uh, how do we most appropriately screen patients before they ever come into the office? What are the checks that are necessary? Um, We were using masks your Darth Vader mask was. Well, yeah, uh, early on, I, th- that actually is an interesting story. That's a l- little, little bit uh, different, but for surgery, I found uh, that the N95 masks were just intolerably uncomfortable. And actually it was one of the bigger concerns early on from a surgical standpoint was I really felt like I wasn't going to be able to do a case, that was longer than a couple hours. And I think so, we should
1: point out that rhinoplasty is a high risk procedure. Yes.
0: Well, we're operating frequently on the uh, upper respiratory tract. Yes. So yeah, rhinoplasty is definitely high risk. Um, in any event, what we found fortunately is that 3M made a uh, respirator that while it looked
1: like Just Vader. it looked
0: crazily <laughs> unwieldy was actually dramatically more comfortable than the N95, and so you know during uh, during those early days of the pandemic and before vaccine and uh, all of that, we uh, converted to, to that and made it possible to continue uh, continue offering. And interestingly, it
1: was a boom in in plastic surgery, and at least for your practice, initially, what I recall, what came back first was rhinoplasty, because a lot of the younger age group, whether it be Mm -hmm. high school or college or early work careers, were suddenly at home with downtime, Uh, and it might have been something that they would have continued putting off until they spent a vacation later in life to do it, but... uh, as I recall, there were a parade of rhinoplasties that came through early in right. the pandemic.
0: Right. I think that's true. And it was uh, it has been true throughout. Most people, I believe, do attribute the maintenance and even increase in surgical volume to be because people had time uh, away from the requirement of going into the office to uh, to recover from procedures. Mm-hmm. So I think that part is definitely true.
1: Initially, it did feel that the younger and the healthier, which makes sense, came back first, whereas right. more of the aging-faced population still stayed home to protect themselves until we knew more, understood more, and until everybody, you know, had the ability to either have right. it and get some natural immunity or, or right. um, get vaccinated and get more comfortable that they could go out with their mask and not right not get sick or get anyone else sick
0: and then we had vaccines develop Mm -hmm. and that was thought that was hoped to be a complete game changer
1: and i think it was but i think we all sort of hoped for a little bit um you know i I think we all had a little bit of this thought it was okay maybe maybe this will be it and and um And Omicron showed us that that wasn't, that certainly wasn't the case.
0: Well, Delta and Omicron and, Mm. um, you know, and again, retrospectively thinking about this from an immunologic, virologic standpoint, we kind of knew that i mean you yeah. know this is what the flu does it's the reason that of we course. have to have to change flu vaccines every year and it's the reason that sometimes it's a little bit of a miss and that it's not 100 percent effective so no and i, I think you know. i
1: think all of us that understand science knew it wouldn't be 100 percent effective and that the vaccines doing what they have done with changing the game with the numbers and keeping patients that are vaccinated that get breakthrough infections out of the hospital, because by and large, while certainly it it still happens, it is far more rare for somebody that's fully vaccinated, especially boosted to get sick enough to go into the hospital, or even if they go into the hospital, it's a night of oxygen and they're not in the ICU. Right. um, Versus, I mean, we just, we saw that with Delta for sure, because that, that really, at least in the U.S., everyone that, that, everyone had an opportunity that was of the age where the vaccines were cleared to get the vaccine, but a lot of people chose not to. And Delta really filled the hospitals with those that chose not to.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that was uh, quite clear. So that showed the
1: success of the vaccine, but it also, um, you know, I think again with, with Omicron around the corner showed that even success it, it, it's, we're still we're still dealing with well this. it's
0: not perfect and mm-hmm. it isn't so, it, it isn't expected to be perfect but to your point that it there overwhelmingly was demonstrable benefit to vaccination mm-hmm. and so it, it was rather bizarre to see somehow this whole. Mindset amongst part of the population that because there was any breakthrough from vaccination, that was proof that the vaccinations were worthless, which is just just completely uh, bizarre and unscientific thinking.
1: People like to hold on to things that they they feel like define their truth or or help them, mm-hmm. you know, justify their decisions. So I think we've seen that in a lot of areas in medicine and otherwise but i think by and large what you know we're going to get to the endemic stage hopefully once we get to the other side the political divide will calm down because i think even in the a little bit less understanding of science community everyone does understand the basics of we need more immunity in the world to get past this whether that be through vaccines through getting the virus
0: yeah. yeah. And at least in the U.S., I think um, I would agree with you now, if you start thinking about the numbers of people who are vaccinated or plus those who are vaccinated and boosted, plus everybody that has had vaccinated the virus. Right it, as, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 it has probably reached that critical point where you wouldn't expect a mass outbreak of um of severe disease i think that's
1: true i do think it's uh unfortunate there's still a lot of fear there's a certain segment of the population both in medicine and i think just in general that have still too much fear of ever contracting the virus which is a it's going to reach a point where that's just unfortunate and unfounded. And it just makes me concerned that those people are not going to be able to lead a normal life. No,
0: I agree. And it, 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 you know, it's the same kind of poor, uh, or, or I shouldn't say poor understanding, difficulty understanding in a lot of the lay public, particularly how, Uh, you know, what expectations with infectious diseases are. And, you know, we, for example, now accept the fact that the flu is around every year as part of um, life. And guess guess what? And And it's always going to be here. And I think that realistically that COVID is going to be endemic as well and it's going to be some there's going to be a level of activity that we're all just going to have to accept and it makes no sense to me anyway to shut down and restrict and otherwise screw up society over a agent that a we have to deal with in some way to start with and b now have I think, a pretty effective set of tools and treatments to deal with it and an understanding of exactly. you know how to manage going forward. So it becomes a manageable disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think
1: that's being reflected in, in communities now, at least across the, well, probably the world, but certainly in the U.S., even... Um, even the higher, more restrictive states and cities are starting to lessen those restrictions. And I think, and I think it's time. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe even a little bit past time.
0: Absolutely. I agree with you on that. Um, But um, anyway, hopefully we're emerging out from the other side and
1: yeah, there's so much more we could talk about, but it gets to the point. Yes. I mean, it is interesting having lived through it, you know, and being uh, someone that was kind of semi on the front line and, Right. Having the applause, but also the first time in my entire career being cussed out. Yes. And, and having to call the police on a yes. patient. Never really had to do that before. So it 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 has definitely been um something to remember. Indeed.
0: <laughs> well, I I'm sure we'll get back to this in some way in some future podcasts. I mean, it's a subject that's gonna remain topical and interestingly, um, you know, this is the this is the second Terrifying epidemic that we've lived through in our uh, careers, HIV being the first. Mm-hmm. Um, we were off. We were, we were both in medical school, I think, right. actually. So it was. It wasn't yeah, like I we mean, were think, on the lines, but that that generated a similar kind of of terror within the uh, within the population until we learned what it was. And now it's manageable. A, now you know. it's probably less of an issue than high blood pressure. You well,
1: you, you see people that you know are. Yeah. are 20 years out, and it's treated as a chronic disease, and it's definitely different. And that might be an interesting podcast to talk about, even just from a med school, med student standpoint, our um, memories of HIV, the early HIV epidemic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, cool stuff. That was fun. And uh, hopefully, it will get even more fun as we wind down into what we're both predicting is the endemic phase of uh COVID and uh, we all get a little bit more back to normal. I'm ready. Okay. Until next time, it's Dr. Mark Beatty.
1: Dr. Laura Beatty.
0: And you know, the more we learn, the, the less, less we know. We know.
1: <laughs> or is it the less we understand, the le- the, the less more, we know. The more the more we learn. Yeah,
0: the less we know. I I think <laughs> that is what it is. But this is a run out, so it's gonna get cut off. But yeah, anyway, cut it off.
1: But I did think it was no, slightly
0: different. No, areas. no, it's the less we know because the the more we the more we know, the more we under no, the more the more we learn, the more we understand, which is why the less we know. No,
1: it's yeah, I the, get it definitely yeah,
0: it's, so I it's the more we, le- the that more is, we that learn is the, paradox. the more we learn, the less we know. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Okay. That should
1: be Thanks for listening to Paradox Life. We are a paradox talking about a lot of paradoxes. <laughs> Is that plural? I don't know. I think anyway, it's paradoxi. <laughs> paradoxi. Thanks for listening and join us again soon when we will talk about more things that we know only a little bit about.